Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker. I'm here with my co-host and very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. When you say it, I almost believe you. I know. I'm getting better at it. Yeah. I, I've been taking some lessons. And the execution is spot on. They say at work that when people talk, it doesn't sound like I care. Uh-huh. And I do not. <laughs> but, but it doesn't mean that I can't sound like I care. Very wise. So, we missed an episode, so we have so many games to talk about. We are actually going to change up the sort of format this week. We are going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Then we're going to talk about the plethora of games that we played in the last two weeks. So many. Then we have a little bit of news, and then we're going to close it out. Mark, exactly one year ago, we played a game called Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. It's a little odd because they're doing a, or have done, or just did, or still doing a crowdfunding campaign for a bunch of David Thompson's uh, military games like this. Solo yeah, the, games. Va- the Valiant Defender series. And for some reason, Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms is not one of them. I have to believe that might have something to do with his various historical partners that he worked with in this. I don't know. I haven't asked. I don't know. It is it is curious because the other games in the series, namely Castle Itter, Lanzarath Ridge, and my favorite, Pavlov's House, are being reprinted. But Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms, which for my money is, I think, the second best of the series, primarily because of not entirely unlike the other engagements in the Valiant Defense series, but the historical setting is just redolent with so many interesting geopolitical intersections and historical happenstance and unlikely heroism from non-military personnel as well as military personnel, because a lot of them were actually plants of the Polish military. Anyway, it's such a, it's such a fascinating engagement, and it's a, it's a bit of a shame. I haven't played Soldiers and Postman's Uniform since we reviewed it. We got a review copy from the designer, uh, but that's only because I've been playing a lot more of Pavlov's House. I really like the Valiant Defender series, and I'm absolutely going to keep trying each new one that comes out. But usually when I want to go back to them, especially after having played Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms a bunch of times in succession, I'm probably going to go back to Pavlov's House because I really, really do like that strategic and tactical interplay. Well, the uh, Postman's Uniforms was the one game that got me back into solo gaming. I did give my copy away to a listener, but it did get me to want to try more solo games, and I have been. It's definitely frequently in my thoughts. Like, it's crawled into my head in a very serious way. And the Valiant Defender series mechanically is is so solid, and the way that it iterates in new engagements is fascinating. It's not a table hog, and a little bit of a setup, but it it's contained. Absolutely. And that is Soldiers and Postman's Uniforms, our as-yet-named retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. Now on to games we played over the course of the past two weeks. Walker, what have you played in the past two weeks? Mark, I have talked about Tendaya before. So this is a Kickstarter that I got a while about a while ago, and I did often compare it to Spirit Island. But through frequent plays this week, it has not panned out so. So what you're doing in Tendaya is that you can play either cooperatively or competitively. All the games that I played this week were cooperatively. And you're there's these eight islands that you get to build at the beginning of the game. The setup is egregious. Multiple decks of cards, building the whole map out. But I think it is worth it. So there's eight islands. And it's sort of pandemic style where there are two gods and they each have an associated catastrophe. One god has a volcano. The other god has a tsunami or a, a tidal wave. So not only do they have their own 
sort of sickness or, you know, locusts or something that they're going to do as a god, also this other thing is going to happen. So four things from that, conquistadors, you know, attacking with ships, all of these things are happening, but you know where it's going to happen and in what order. So potentially you can use the god's powers against the conquistadors, the invading armies. Didn't really pan out that much, but still. So you're planning ahead. You're either vacating islands or you're defending the islands and you're trying to get enough food because you have to feed your people at the end of every turn. On top of that, the gods get angry. They're very fickle gods, Mark. They don't sound like nice individuals. You lose people, they get mad. You make too much food and waste food, they get mad. You don't give them the proper offerings, they get mad. Too much eye contact, they get mad. Yes. Not enough eye contact, they get mad. And and the mad- talking about how they get mad, ooh, ooh, you better believe that's a maddening. Um, so every time, if the more mad they get, the bigger the radius of this catastrophe that's going to happen for both you know their power and their associated power. So it can get awfully devastating. But if you give them the proper offerings and you get to move down the chart, if you go too high up the chart, then you just lose the game completely. If you lose so many figures, you go off the chart completely. It's got a neat system where there are four sort of skill trees and you start the game with two of them, which release two cubes, which are actions. So you get a small pool of actions to start plus the two skill cubes. And then as you go down those skill trees, they have cylinders that get removed and they're a one time per round double action. So it's this interesting like action economy that you're trying to use and save actions so you know when to use them and, and learning different skills and taking over parts of islands. And and for those two skills that you didn't get, you can trade with the other players because they, they're going to start with the other two that you don't have. So you can send over your leader and he can bring back knowledge to your people. Interesting. Everyone very much enjoyed it. Play it two player and then we played it four player. Everyone wants to get back to it. So that is a good sign. I don't know how much more I can say about Tendaya. There's special powers, there's cards, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. This is designed by Lolo Gonzalez and put out by Red Mojo Games. Played another game of Radiant Offline Battle Arena. This is a review copy of the Champion Edition sent by the publisher. I am a massive fan of Radiant. In the vast universe of MOBA-style games, it is by far the best one with a minimalistic footprint, and it really does capture the sense of the game in a very, very tight package. In a certain way, it is kind of, to MOBA games, what Imperium the Contention is to 4X games. Cards only, very quick to get to action, not a whole lot of jockeying around. And in point of fact, the last session that I had was yet more direct than many, because in Radiant, it's not uncommon to move your figures around for a little, try to build up the proper hand, maybe a couple of relatively inconsequential combats before the real blood starts to flow. Even then, we're talking about a 45-minute game length. In this particular session, though, the knives came out immediately, and there were significant casualties very early on in the game. I think someone, point of fact, died in the first activation of the of the game. And I thought that that was going to be determinative. And I was initially thinking, oh, wait, maybe Radiant is a little more swingy than I thought it was. And it, and it is more swingy, but in a good way, because the individual who got kneecapped on the first turn managed to rally and win in a very surprising development through careful marshalling of resources and careful positioning. It was extremely satisfying, as all these games have been thus far. I enjoy exploring all the characters and all the card 
combinations. And there's a lot of leeway in terms of selecting what god and what heroes you're going to have and what equipment to buy and when to buy and what have you. And the character differentiation, the expansion introduced by the Champion Edition included new character packs. One of them is a tree that just doesn't move. It's called Grandfather. And it just cannot move until it levels up. It's very expensive to level up. And then it becomes this massive kaiju tree, earth-devouring monster. Fabulous. That never happened. I wasn't able to marshal that many resources, but I, I, I definitely wanted to. But knowing that you can. Knowing right? that you can, exactly. Radiant Offline Battle Arena continues to please. Designed by Jack Murray, released by Hillturn Games. It, their website has gone a bit dark. It's it's confusing. I hope there's a future for Radiant. I want there to be more content. There's more room in the box. And it's a fabulous design. And I really think it, they're, they're onto something special. And I sincerely hope that in the future we can see more content to Radiant Offline Battle Arena. All right. So, Formula D. Everyone knows I love it. I compare every racing game to it. Unfavorably, usually. Usually. Chip the Third is a big racing fan, so he wanted to get it to the table. And this is produced by Asmodee and designed by Laurent Lavier and Eric Randall. Do you play the Formula D version or the Formula D version? Formula D. Ah. But like but not the street racing side. Just the normal Grand Prix cars. Do you not like family? I guess I don't like family. You have a problem with family? Well, Chip the Third was very, he's very race oriented. He wasn't, you know, a fan oh, of the shooting okay. and, the, and the peel outs and the light. Anyway. Got it. So that being said, I'll explain what that means. The new Formula Day that came out has two sides of the track. So you can play the Normula, Formula. Normula. Formula One. Go Just go around the track, bump each other, hit the corners. Or you can play the street racing where everyone has their own individual powers. There's parts of the track that do all sorts of crazy things. There's jumps or every track has something different. Interesting stuff going on. And the tracks look amazing. Sometimes there's like figure eights you do or all sorts of crazy things. Anyway, Formula D is a very much push your luck type of game. You need to hit the corners at just the right number of spaces or else you miss it and you have to slow way down because you have to sometimes you have to make multiple stops in a corner so you have to roll the right dice and you have to manage your tires because if you overshoot a tire you overshoot a turn you use up some tires or if you need to gear down more than just once you're going to be using some of your gearbox and brakes and all sorts of things lots of things to you know take into account there's pit stops very interesting things. If you have a chance to try Formula Day, it comes with very special specialized dice that make it go fairly quickly. You don't want to play with too many players. That is, it is, it really is, Mark. I'm sorry. It is, it does take too long. The, the, my key objection is, is this. This whole managing of your tires and your gearbox and all the other forms of damage, it really becomes very interesting once you include rules for pitting which only makes sense in multiple laps. Yes. And at that point, the length just starts to go on and on. It does, but it gives, uh, yeah. But then you get a, you get a sense of racing. It, it, no, absolutely. It, 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 feels, to it, it totally makes the game space more, more fleshed out and it increases the level of interesting trade-offs. It definitely feels its age, right? But then you're rolling dice for two and a half hours. Exactly. It's just, it's, it's a thing. Yes. You need to find players that, are, that do enjoy it. You got to, you know, you, if you're introducing someone to this game, make sure you're only doing one lap. If they then, you know, show more interest, then, you know, bring in two laps and maybe more. I think, I think part of the problem may be that I do not have any independent enthusiasm for Formula One. It's too close to sports ball for my taste. True. Next time we play it, we're going to have two cars each because, you know, playing it three player, 
is fine, but there's not the corner blocking that you would get. So we're going to do some team racing. We have Walker two needs cars. His blocking. It's going to be great. Blocking, fantastic. Forming the day. Played Undaunted Battle of Britain. This was one of my anticipated titles. This is a review copy you sent to us from the publisher. Really? How was it, Mark? Oh, gee, Walker, I'm sorry that I got called out of town to take care of my ailing relatives and that mildly inconvenienced you with respect to Undaunted Battle of Britain. Anyhow, Undaunted Battle of Britain is designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. This is the latest in the prolific series from Undaunted, starting out in Normandy, going to North Africa, going to Stalingrad, and now it's the Battle of Britain. This is by far, I think, the most different of all of the Undaunted games, because instead of operating on large square terrain tiles, you're now operating on a hex grid. Now, of course, if you arrange square tiles in an offset way, as Undaunted does, it is a hex grid, but you have far fewer spaces in your average scenario of Undaunted than you do in even the smallest of scenarios in Undaunted Battle of Britain. And as a consequence, it feels closer along the line to something akin to like a miniature skirmish game. And very satisfyingly so. Because your planes, every time they activate, they are obliged to move forward. Because, you know, they're planes, and that's how planes work. And they're only able to fire in a direct line right in front of them. Because, again, QV, planes. So as a consequence, maneuver becomes not just a thing you do instead of shooting, it becomes the necessary thing you do in order to factor into shooting. Initiative, which is one of Undaunted's great strengths, it has my favorite initiative system of any combat game I have ever played, ever, now becomes excessively important because you might be right in line to shoot something, or you might realize that you're one move away from being in line to shoot something. And therefore, being able to activate first is crucial, not just because you'll be shooting in different uh, advantageous modifiers, as you might be in another Undaunted game. But here, it might be the entire precondition for you being able to shoot at all. Now, despite this, the scenarios so far that I've seen are set up in such a way that you're not going to spend a lot of time wasting your time. This is one of my complaints about other aerial games, uh, Wings of War, X-Wing to a certain extent, sometimes even Armada, but less so, where a lot of good play is just ensuring that nothing happens. You know, you circle each other for a long time, it takes forever to get around to the other side of the board, a whole bunch of blocking, and so, uh, so, so on and so forth. And that's fine, it leads to some clever plays, but it certainly can lead to a stall in the action. I was initially concerned in the initial turns when I was, you know, fully realizing how difficult it can be to line up a shot in Battle of Britain that we might have some of the same difficulties, but my fears were unfounded because it is important to remember this tactical system is grafted onto an excellent deck building system. And so if you keep your deck lean and or focused, you will be able to get your shots lined up faster than your opponent can react. And so in a very weird way, the restrictive board play or what might per be perceived as restricted board play puts double emphasis on quality deck management. And as a consequence, this was another great voyage of discovery into Undaunted and what the system can do. This is making me wish, actually, that Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson would lean into this. I would really like to see a card-driven skirmish game, like a pure skirmish game with kind of sort of the bones of the Undaunted system. Don't get me wrong, I love the historical trappings, uh, but, you know, as far as historical warplanes go in the Battle of Britain, that isn't necessarily my particular brand of enthusiasm but, you know, two-player skirmish games very much is. Yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not going to say that I want fewer historical war games in my life, but I, I, I love the system and I like seeing it evolve. And I'd like to see what else it could do because it really seems to be vastly more flexible than I thought. Because when I initially saw the maps for Battle of Britain, I'm like, oh, these look very different. How on earth is this going to work? The answer is extremely well. 
I'm very much looking forward to trying more scenarios. It is reminding me that we need to get back to Stalingrad and finish out those scenarios, see how that campaign flushes itself out. This is a system that I never tire of and has been explored extremely well by extremely talented designers. And so I'm very, very glad that it continues to do well and support additional iterations. That is Undaunted Battle of Britain by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. It's got, by- oh, sorry. It's come right back to its original thing. There's no campaign. Every battle is Correct. completely separate, right? Oh, yes. Right. Thus far, Stalingrad is the only game with a campaign system attached. Right. They each have historical scenarios that could be played in order or indeed in any order you want. So everyone knows I like Orleans, Mark. So we went to play co-op again. This is designed by Reiner Stockhausen and put out by DLP Games or Tasty Minstrel Games, as my copy is. And normally, for those who have Orleans, it's a competitive game. It's a bag builder. You're, you have all these different recipes on your board where you're going to be getting monks or, or building your bag out with, with new buildings, more soldiers, more actions, and Every turn, you want to do everything, and everything is important because getting soldiers lets you bring out more tiles out of your bag. Getting monks makes you more flexible, and then suddenly, you know, your bag is a little bloated, and so they have mechanisms in there as well to dump your bag out. In the co-op version, you get to do it cooperatively. It has all these different boards. You're trying to build ramparts around the city. You're trying to build catapults. You're trying to fill the warehouse with food and money so everyone will stay alive. And once again, it was right down to the wire. There's a whole different deck of events. Uh, we introduced Chip the Third to it for the first time. Everyone enjoyed it. It got down to the very last turn where, of course, we were short like $3 and a piece of grain, <laughs> which is unfortunate. What a great game. I think co-op is by far one of my favorites. There are tons of buildings you can get now, even though the unfortunately the co-op, they restrict you down to a certain set of buildings, but still very You have to, you have to chase them down as promos, don't you, for a lot of the additional buildings? Yes. But that's a shame. But there's so many, like at this point, even if they're not promos, even just the normal sets that you can pick up. Fair enough. There is enough. But lots of things to do. They even have a sideboard with uh, special actions just for cooperative modes. Everyone gets their own sort of uh, unique power, or I wouldn't say power, but sort of, you know, uh, you know, either the mayor or uh, the fisherman, or you get your own sort of unique thing that you have to do as well as everything else. Enjoy Orleans Co-op. If you haven't tried it, definitely give it a whirl. As everyone knows, I live my life by the principles of the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. And he has taught me that witchcraft is wicked. It's wicked witchcraft. And we know that it's strictly taboo. Strictly. Yes. The heat is too intense for it. What good would common sense do to it? Anyway, Witchcraft, designed by Trevor Benjamin, Roger Tankersley, and David Thompson by Salt and Pepper Games. This is an early preview copy we got from the designer. This is an iteration of the same game system, Resist, also by Salt and Pepper Games. Witchcraft is currently on crowdfunding. It's on GameFound at the moment. And again, I was I, I was initially somewhat trepidatious approaching Witchcraft because I was worried that the incredible sense of place and personality of the uh, Makizag was going to be replaced with some kind of generic kind of witches-doing-magic thing. And point of fact... Uh, I need not have been concerned because there are two additional things that witchcraft does that really serve to center it in an interesting, albeit uh, fantastical way. One of them is it's kind of an inversion 
witch panic of the Salem witch trials, because here the witches are the protagonists and the heroes. And so you have an all-female cast working to defend a village of people that hate and fear them from actual evil magic. Now, uh, my appreciation for the inversion of this trope and the sort of redemption of, of this narrative is undercut slightly by the idea that you're actually casting the people who are accused of witchcraft as actually being witches. But anyway, setting that aside, that's not the intent. It's just a weird sort of consequence of the setting. The other thing is, is that instead of fighting to an arbitrary point total and then calling the rebellion a day, here what you're actually trying to do is persuade three prominent members of the community that you are, in point of fact, trustworthy, decent individuals who ought not to be executed for the sin of witchcraft. And it's not just that, but each judge that you have in the context of setup, comes with their own set of missions and their own set of adversaries that get shuffled into the deck. And so not only is there a tremendous amount of variety, but there's a tremendous amount of focus in terms of the narrative of what is happening to the village, because it is all tied to the people that you're trying to persuade. This is all underlined by the tremendous artwork of Albert Montes, who is the artist for Resist. And so I have to say that this is an equally worthy uh, counterpart to Resist, if not more... Uh, compelling in terms of focused narrative. So the amount of personality that was already in Resist, I've talked before about how each individual Makiza is rendered with such compelling artwork and with such humanity that you actually feel the loss every time you play them and uh, for their powered-up version and thereby expose them and subject them to arrest or capture or, or death. Similarly, you've got that and even more so because you're again, trying to persuade these members of the community and doing tasks that are intimately associated with them. And so witchcraft is a, a tremendous success, I think, in that sense. And much like its predecessor is very, very simple to set up, quick to play, very light on rule set, and consists of just dealing with a cavalcade of terrible trade-offs until, of, of course, you end up in a position where you're not. Now, the, 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 the problem is gameplay-wise... Uh, I, I had a little bit of uh, a problem whereby I kind of turned a corner and then it was largely just based on what cards I happened to draw from my deck because I tended to find that I was either scrabbling to get to a very, very small number or I was drowning in power and I could just dispense with everything easily based on card draw. That's to be expected. I've, I'd already spent some time upgrading my deck up to that point. There, the other aspect, though, about which I have a little bit more caution is that near the end of the game you start getting these missions in witchcraft that say, if you don't go after this mission, something terrible happens. And all the level three missions have conditions of that nature. And so I left myself in a position where one of the interesting aspects, the thing that kind of undercuts the pain of drawing a bad hand, the idea that you could go and do an easier mission and buy some time and bide your time to then go do a harder mission when you had a better hand is kind of undercut when you look at the table and if you don't do this mission, you're, you get an automatic loss condition effectively by not choosing that. So you have to go to that mission. I wasn't a huge fan of that element. The, the, the aspect of forced play wasn't a great way to end the game. And so I, I was just taking the missions as they came rather than being able to choose. But as I say, the, the, the sense of place, the sense of personality, the sense of narrative that you get from a very, very simple rule set is, you know, hardly surprising given the designers involved. History of quality that it is not surprising that I found witchcraft as engaging as I did. So, as I say, it's on crowdfunding right now. If you're interested in taking a look, that is Witchcraft by Salt and Pepper Games. And like, it's much like Resist, like you said, where it's a solo game. One, yeah. Solo only, yes. 
So we streamed Red Cathedral a couple of weeks ago because two people have not played it in our streaming group and we wanted to get the expansion to the table. So we said, well, we're going to play the original game first and then in the next week we'll play the expansion. Of course, that didn't happen because we're not allowed to play the expansion. So Red Cathedral is put out by Debbie Games <laughs> and designed by Isra C and Shy S. It's very interesting. You're sort of building a cathedral up by choosing actions, either to use dice to get resources or or holding different parts of the cathedral for you to build and forcing the end of the game and uh, manipulating dice in a way. And there's special powers in all the different quadrants of the board. It's a very interesting game in a very small box, fairly easy to teach. I would definitely ask people to give it a try. The artwork is stunning. Everything about it is great. Red Cathedral, I don't know what to say more about it, Mark. What do you think about Red Cathedral? I think it's good, but not great. I'd happily play it if suggested. I wish the competition for area majority scoring were a little bit more intense. I find that aspect to be a little bit, yeah, if, if anything, uh, anticlimactic. True, and they have this very interesting system where if you finish part of the cathedral before the people below you have, there's a penalty, but the penalty is so little that yeah. it's not this great thing. And then, like we've always talked about, there's this sort of, I don't want to say king, uh, you're giving great opportunity to the next player because you move the dice and then after you've done your action, you roll the dice and you're going to give, you know, it might just work out perfectly for the next person, whereas you got nothing. Yeah, the, the dice allocation system and the action selection mechanism is very, very clever. But the prominent downside is, as you describe, you're frequently left in a position where on your turn, you've just been handed some obviously effective action or by accident, you hand one to the, the player next in line. That having been said, there's a lot to recommend it. As you say, it's very uh, rules light for the quality of decision making, which is excellent. And uh, the, the I don't know why it being in such a small box is so charming to me, but it is. So tune in next Saturday. There's a good chance. I'm not going to promise it, but there's a good chance that we're going to be playing Red Cathedral with the expansion. And uh, hopefully it makes the game better. In contravention of the law that says I, you can't try the expansion? I know. I know we're not going to say anything. <laughs> You're not law locker. We played Castles by the Sea. This is by John Benjamin and Michael Quareb, published by Brotherwise Games after a successful crowdfunding campaign. This is a weird... Oh, man, it's bizarre. Uh, so the theme is that there are these shorelings who are very, very uh, li small Lilliputians who are building sandcastles. Do you get it? Because it's sandcastles, but they're the size of castles to them. Very charmingly, then, there are these uh, threats that are given very, very grandiose names like the Terror or the Great Claw, which are, in point of fact, a dog or a crab, respectively. And then move around the board and very at various points destroy things. Now, the problem is, as far as I can see, uh, well, twofold. First of all, you run out of blocks, which is a shame because a lot of the appeal of Castles by the Sea is visual. You have these chunky wooden cubes, and every turn you put some out, and if you've built them in the right pattern, that lets you put out some of your pieces. And that's basically your goal. You put out your own pieces, and they will score you points every turn. As a consequence, you very early on, in our case, in the first two rounds, you can build up a very solid income. And in point of fact, you might be able to build up such an income lead that it's pretty clear how the game is going to go. The balancing factor is supposed to be that other players can then act, maneuver the threats in such a way that they can knock down everything you've built and you might have to start over from square one. 
In practice, I didn't feel that that really worked, because at the end of your turn, you get to move any one of the threats, and the other two get closer to activation. And so, as a consequence, in order to actually get threatened by something on your turn, all the players have to collude with a very, very sharp focus in terms of making sure that the threat is where it needs to be, because otherwise, the player in the lead can just move the threat again on their turn. And I... I really felt that the the, the game kind of ran out of steam after about two rounds. It was clear what was going to happen. And then we ran out of blocks, which was frustrating. It was visually delightful, but ultimately it felt like just procedural and not particularly satisfying. Sure, as for the blocks, we did run it. It was like the very last two turns where we were Unforgivable sin. It is. But I, not really. That, that I think, was uh, acerbated by the threats that we had. One of the threats was a sandstorm. That's true. Which added more... Uh, cubes to the table and and our threats didn't do as much damage as I wanted them to. Yeah. Like you said, there are three threats that rotate around the board and I'm not going to repeat what you said. Um, The game is as charming as I wanted it to be. Yes, it is very charming. It is. The rule book is atrocious, but <laughs> in general, it, it, you know what they were trying to get to. It's it's more of just we would like to have a clarification that's that was not there, but in in, mo- in most cases you pretty knew you pretty well knew what was going on. Well, yeah, just one example. We had the the inter- the recommended introductory set because there's a variety of different pieces you can play with in order to be able to score points. We had a uh, a gate, and it said that basically both sides of the gate had to be clear. Both sides of the gate had to be open. We couldn't find a rigorous definition of what open was, and so we couldn't be certain whether the edge of the board was open or not. And that was a certain degree of confusion. The rulebook didn't seem to have immediate, immediately available answers. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, honestly, why I bring up the lack of blocks. If you're going to sell the game on being visually charming, and Castles by the Sea is very visually charming, you build up these lovely little structures, running out of blocks seems particularly painful. And as far as the overall gameplay dynamic goes, if indeed there were different threats that were more damaging, I feel that then you would be in an equally kind of pointless gameplay, because if you're just constantly starting over from scratch, then you're just having a series of first turns. And the first turns are kind of scripted. It's kind of obvious what you do when you have just your initial three blocks. The game state gets more interesting when you're building off everybody else. But even then, you're just kind of adding a couple points onto your already sizable income. And so I I feel like there's no good equilibrium for Castles by the Sea to have, which is kind of disappointing. It's true. For For the quality of the artwork and the interesting theme and concept of the whole game... I really wish, yes, like you said, the, the concept was more locked down and more interactive, too, because it is a little bit solo-ish because, yes. because of the way you can manipulate the, the, the threats. It's almost purely tactical. Every turn you get three blocks to, to put out and you just look at your pieces and say, okay, how can I put out the most number of new pieces now? All right, here's how I do. And then the player to your left does the same. Yeah, there is a, there is a chance to hold back blocks. That just means that you're skipping your turn, though, really. Yeah, because the game is about generating income, skipping part of your turn just means you're leaving some of the income off the table, and so might as well take it when you can. And that is Castles by the Sea. I finally got to the table. This is what I did in the two week, for the week that you were gone, Mark. I tried to destroy all of my shelf of shame. I almost did. <laughs> One game away, unfortunately. Ooh, that's not bad. This is Sherlock Holmes. Baker Street Irregulars. This is designed by Cedric Asna and published by Machina Editions. And this is very much like Crusoe Crew that I talked about before. There are four little mini graphic novels. Uh, 
and I only wanted to, we got to play at the full four player count and everyone has different skills. You know, one was very good at mechanical things. One was good at climbing. One was strong and did their own thing and so on and so forth. And everyone very much seemed to enjoy it. Very interesting puzzles, very interesting ways to communicate back and forth. I believe it was much better than Crusoe Crew because there was very minimal rules. It was you open up the book and you just went. There was no like, you know, all the different regulations and things you needed to look for. It's like, nope, you're in Holmes' office. You know, he gives you the mission, tells you where to go. You get to the front door, it's locked. You can't get out and you got to figure out the code to get out the door. And, mm. and then and then you get to Moriarty's house and all these different things. And everything's very interesting. We're going to get back to it. There was three missions. I believe it's a, a better for a uh, uh, younger crowd. I think, you know, for children, it might be better as long as you're there to sort of regulate it type thing. I would not just hand it out to, you know, four children and say, and think they're going to get through it. Yeah. Besides, strange men distributing literature to children, I think, is generally frowned upon. Yeah, I'm not allowed back there. Oh, that's too bad. How long did the, 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 the quote unquote first mission take? I think it was about 30 minutes or okay. so, maybe 45 minutes for the second one. So all told, the game has roughly about two hours of content in it? I think so. Okay. has comes with a nice map, uh, has all the sort of solving, like all the answers in the back in case you get stuck somewhere. Mm-hmm. You get to, you know, write on the map if you wish. It tells you to do so because you have to figure out different areas. And if you need to reset, you can reset back to a crossroads as opposed to going all the way back to the beginning of the game. Same sort of thing. You can analyze each panel. At one point, we realized someone was following us, which I thought was kind of cool. This is Sherlock Holmes, Baker Street Irregulars. Got to try Dorf Romantic, the board game. Now, I had to overcome my initial great disappointment. I had thought that this was a romance game where you got to date Dorf, the comedy character of Tim Conway from the 1980s and 1990s of Dorf on Golf and so forth. I wanted to go out on a date with Dorf. I wanted to see... Anyway... I was involved peripherally in editing the rulebook of a project of Reiner Knizia's back when Cambridge Games Factory was a thing. And he he made the comment, people seem to find German very funny. I don't understand why. To which the response was, it's very funny to English speakers. Anyway, Dorf Romantic. Dorf Romantic was a video game of the tile-laying variety. It was very much, I think, not having played it. And the great game at the right time. It came out in the middle of the pandemic. Everyone was stuck at home. Everyone was stressed. And Dorf Romantic is this lovely, pastoral, charming-themed game. Very, very low stress. I remember the trailer out on Steam. It's just this very, very pleasant-sounding man, very calmly explaining about how you're going to go build a lovely village. And then the music. It was like, Lovely, oh. soft music, yeah. And Dorf Romantic, the board game, as a co-op experience, is indeed low stress, pleasant experience. Now, some of the placement restrictions are a little bit counterintuitive, but we ironed those out very quickly in the the first few rounds. And it's basically a multiplayer solitaire game in that all the decisions could be made by one person. But it says it goes up to six. We played it with three, which I think was roughly a good number. I'd happily play it with two. I may play it with four. Past that, I think there's not enough decisions to be spread out that thin. Yes, the last streaming, it was just uh, Warm Boy and I. So we'd played a whole bunch of two-player games. Door, Door for Manic as one of them. We played two-player, and it worked out just great. So if you want to see how it plays, you can check it out. It's nice in that there aren't many tile placement restrictions. It's mostly just trying to figure out how to maximize your available score. Now, normally, solo games that are just a score attack don't 
offer uh, much delight to me. But this is where the, I don't want to call it a campaign, there are these unlocks that you can do that gradually introduce new rules and new little modules. And the way that it works is after every session, you record your score, doesn't matter whether it's the same people, doesn't matter whether it's different people, and that might allow you to unlock a new box, which just introduces more uh, mechanisms into Dwarf Romantic, which is fine. It starts out relatively simple, and a little bit more complexity is fine. And I very much enjoyed the the one play that I did. I understand you've played uh, several more times since then, Walker. Yeah, there's also missions during the game that you get as well. Like the one that we unlocked not only did it... uh, like you, mild spoilers to follow. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to give any details. It's just the fact that they're there. Sure. So that, like you said, at the end of every game, you can unlock stuff. But then the, what we unlocked was an actual mission. So the next time we can play it, we can do certain things with the tiles that will do further unlocks during the game. Ah. Which is kind of interesting. And for those who have played it, it's, they do a fantastic job of making it just like the video game. They just change up how the houses and the trees work. So instead of counting each tree on the tile, it's everything's just the tile. And same right. thing with the houses. In the video game, it's like how many houses are on the tile. This is just the tiles and you're putting out. And it locks down. I believe, I'm not sure what how the actual mechanism in the video game works for... Uh, you know, the putting out the objectives, like, you know, you need that many houses. It seems to be just random. But in this, you you always have three going at once. I also very much appreciated the fact that it reminded me of Sprawlopolis, which was also a solo or co-op card-laying game by Buttonshy Games. But Sprawlopolis is kind of like Calico in that it is brain-burningly difficult. And the spatial puzzles involved, despite the charming level theme, are very, very spatially puzzly in a way that hurts my head. Dorf Romantic is very much the beginner version of that. It's not as stressful. It's not as 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 brain-meltingly obtuse uh, in terms of the parameters of, of various scoring trade-offs. The rule set for both games are very, very simple. But So if you like Sprawlopolis or want something simpler, or if you liked the video game and want something of vaguely the same tone, uh, Dorf Romantic was, was very pleasant. I would happily play it again. I enjoy tiling games, especially when there's a shared board. And I thought the way that it, it dealt with a pseudo-campaign elements to be very nice. Yeah, I have, looking forward to playing it more. This was designed by Michael Palm and Lucas Zack. They first came to my attention with their design, Die Kutschwart zur Teufelsberg, which before The Resistance was definitely my multiplayer game of choice. And as a consequence, I've always kept an eye on games they've developed since. Uh, Kutschwart was a, a very, very compelling multiplayer game. Back when the only thing that a lot of game groups had to, to accommodate large groups of players was bang, Kutschwart was much, much better. Uh, they, they've designed this co-op adventure card game called Aventuria with 55 million different modules. I've got a set of it. That's, I, I that's have, a lot of modules. I haven't tried it yet. I don't have all of the modules. I, I got it in trade with a number of modules. I've been meaning to give it a try, even though it doesn't look particularly stellar. But again, Michael Palm and Lucas Zach, they're, they're very, very competent designers. And so I should give that a try at Sunday. Anyway, Dorf Romantic was published in 2022 by Pegasus Spiel. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. 
Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Got Ragnarok's to the table again. This is designed by Gord, the same designer of Santorini, and has the same sort of feel. Very minimalistic uh, strategy game. It is a large grid of hexes, and both sides have three Vikings. And on your turn, you choose a Viking that's not on a settlement. A settlement is a, a, a single Vikings of a single color trap behind a wall. And so you pick a Viking not in a settlement, you move them along the grid lines as far as you want, and then you can place a stone, part of a wall, the same way that you move that Viking. So coming from that Viking along a grid line, as long as you're not passing through other other Vikings or other stones, and you're trying to trap and or block off the most of the map for yourself, because whoever has the, the most hexes at the end of the of the game is going to be the winner. And much like Santorini, there's all sorts of different, you know, god powers or hero powers or whatever kind of powers you want to call them that change up the game that make it all sorts of crazy silliness. Have you played yet with Tyr? Yes. I couldn't tell you what his power is, but we did play with Tyr. Your general indifference to Tyr is a source of great shame for me. <laughs> it was very interesting. I love I love Ragnarok. Very minimalistic, super easy to teach. Like just pick a Viking, move him, place a wall. Once again, though, I much like Santorini. I like just playing it the base game way. Yeah, the god powers always just seem to throw a weird wrench. If if they had made them all balanced, then it would sure. be easy. Just two random ones. And it's and, really hard to balance things like that for abstracts and, like Ragnaroks and Santorini. Yeah, though, so. and so they've got a deck of almost 50 and someone's supposed to go through them all and pick two. And then the opponent picks one of those two and you get the other one. Oh, I see. And that, I guess in a game that you play a lot where you get to sure. know all of the powers that I'm sure would work out for a game that you play once a year. Not so much. Between Ragnarok's and Santorini, do you yet have a favorite? Uh, I've been playing Santorini a lot on board game arena lately. Mm-hmm. I think Santorini is still my favorite. It is a very, very well done design. It's very, yeah. very much more visually appealing and they have that newest kickstarter out so yeah well even the base version is so visually it all the additions of santorini back when it was wood it looked gorgeous the plastic edition that you can get very very cheaply from big box stores also gorgeous the new deluxe one also visually stunning it's it's just it's a stellar game If, if i had any more enthusiasm for positional abstracts i'd absolutely be playing more of it but as it is i've been sold a little bit more on the god powers in santorini the last two games i played over the last couple of days they were matched, and and the way they played against each other was very interesting. But we'll see. Santa, uh, Ragnarok by Gord and put out by Gray Fox Games. Played a game of Princes of the Renaissance. This is a Martin Wallace design that was originally published shortly after the turn of the century. Feels Still feels a bit strange uh, talking about the early aughts that way, but here we are. And was republished in a new edition by Mercury Games in 2016, and that is the edition that we played. Slightly rebalanced player powers, a lot more graphical flourishes on the box, 
and no more of the incredibly terrible money that Warfrog used to use. Which is relevant, because you'll be spending a lot of time spending money in Princess of the Renaissance. This is basically an auction game where you auction, or you start an auction, or you bid on the auction. I was about to say, what kind of a game is it, Mark? I, I forgot. It's an auction. It, is it an auction you do You do auctions. You do auctions. And you do this largely in service of potentially starting wars. And you might figure, oh, what? how do you fight wars? Well, you auction. You auction for the wars. <laughs> And that wouldn't be so bad, but is 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 Beowulf? Is there another game besides Beowulf? I thought I was trying to think of it. I thought there was another game that that had lots of auctions, but all the auctions were different. It was just Beowulf. Well, modern modern art as as is one of the classic examples because there's a whole bunch of different forms of auctions. But and and Beowulf really only has two different kinds of auctions. But really. at least it's two different kinds. This Fair is enough. the same. <laughs> okay, sorry, the currencies are a little bit different. The but currencies just, are different, yes. It is just auction after auction after auction. Yes. So, as somebody who very, very much enjoys auction games, I was looking forward to trying it. And indeed, Martin Wallace is one of those designers for me, even when I don't enjoy the game, I often find that I it either has some historical perspective that's kind of interesting, or at the very least, it has some weird mechanical quirks that you're not apt to find anywhere else. And he's often drawn to historical themes, and a lot of his historical themes involve some degree of warfare in euro mechanistic trappings and so the fact that you mostly just do auctions and then every once in a while you do a dice off with combat values to see who wins a fight this is very much in martin wallace's wheelhouse oh, no, no. i think you're breezing over it too quickly first of all <laughs> to start a war, i wasn't intended to, to be comprehensive to, 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 to start a war yes. because you want to start a war because you want to get money that is usually the main focus or to uh, influence the relative or, standings of two that is also true or to get victory points through the the, the, the war victory tokens so, so yes go on you're spending this this currency that is very hard to get influence yes influence and then if you happen to win there is now the take that tomfoolery phase <laughs> where the, that well influence put. that very you, well put that that you that you stored up or the only influence you have left for that entire round is now could be just wasted because someone decided, oh, I'm just going to play this card because... Yeah. And then you get to roll a die. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so in the early... So there are three decades, three rounds of the game. It's three decades long, but it only feels like it's five years long. Uh, in the first decade, I think all of the wars were inconclusive. There were ties. And so nothing happened to the board state. All that happened was a small amount of money entered people's pockets because we all play as mercenary families. Well, it, that was the thing. There was five battles. All of them were ties, but one where that one was won by double. Ah, yes, the blowout. Yes, but the, the point is, is that it felt frustrating because we were doing, we were going through the entire procedure, lots of auctions, only for nothing to happen as a consequence of those things, right? The second decade, I started to feel we're doing a lot of auctioning here. The third decade, I actually turned around and I really started to appreciate it because I saw the economy starting to develop because all of these auctions are also in service of basically a stock mechanism whereby the fates of five different Italian city-states are going to give you points based on how well they've done over the course of wars and a couple of other things. That part I appreciated. However... In a universe where Raw exists, it is difficult to recommend spending an hour and a half to two hours doing a large number of auctions, especially given that there's not a whole lot of room for economic error. If you end up short or you end up uh, uh, being 
uh, behind in terms of the economic rat race in eras two and three, you're going to have a rough road ahead of yeah, Duke. Winners are winners win. Yes, because win- <laughs> winners get tiles that get them win. more income. Winners and, win. Yeah, and and I haven't even talked about the part where everyone's uh, currency is face down, so you don't even get to know. What everyone has when you're starting these these auctions. Ah, uh, but people like intrigue. Uh, no, I agree with you. And going back to your point about the treachery cards, on the face of it, there's one way the treachery cards enter the system that I really like, and that is uh, to evocative of something in a much later design and a much lighter design, Raccoon Tycoon. If you start an auction for a tile in Princes of the Renaissance and somebody else buys the thing, you can then buy a treachery card for one one of each of the two currencies. Now. That part for me was kind was fine. The effects of the cards, as Walker pointed out, can be desperately unsatisfying. Just like, no, 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 this isn't happening. Or I'm going to completely kneecap you in a given war or what have you. And then on top of that, there are various power tiles that just let you draw more of these treachery cards. So if it were just the case that they entered the system through the fact that you started an auction that somebody else won, I think that would be vastly more interesting. On top of that, it's only one kind of tile in the rules as written that gives you that ability. There are other tiles that you can auction and lose, or wars that you can start and lose the auctions for, that you don't get this this degree of compensation. So that's frequently house-ruled for what it's worth. There have been a lot of house rules over the years because apparently in the original Warfrog edition, on top of all these... uh, quibbles to problems that we have with Princes of the Renaissance. The family powers were all over the map. I enjoyed the one play. I found it interesting and illuminating. I don't know that I would go back. I really love the one, the other part too about ending the round. Like we said, there are two main auctions that you're going to start. There is to get more tiles, so you get more points at the end of the game and more income during the game. And then they're starting the auction for uh, starting wars. But then there are event tiles at the bottom is it five five well four on the pope four on the pope and you get to start at an auction for those if you want and when once those event tiles are gone that ends the round so there's this interesting timing mechanism yeah the tempo is interesting yeah and again since the major power that you have on your turn is deciding to auction something you get to exert control over how the game state is going to evolve as i said there are lots of interesting things i don't know that you know that the overall flow of the economy works as intended and i don't think that the game bears its length very well and if I'm just going to be doing nothing but auctions, I'd much rather play modern art or raw or something of that nature. It's it's weird because there's the something that kind of the opposite problem for me exists in another Martin Wallace design, which was Pericles. Pericles was also an e- classic economic system. In this case, it was area majority, not auctions, married to a warfare thing. The thing is, is that it was the warfare in Pericles that took too long because you play this area majority game that I think worked really well. You, you get to be elected to the head of various Greek city-states and then you get all these troops, this large stack of various troop tokens. And then you spend a lot of time going around the table and everyone places two tokens at a time to the various wars. and all. If that could have been streamlined, I'd be very, very, very happy to play Pericles because that marriage of, you know, Euro and war in the Martin Wallace-esque mold worked surprisingly well in concept and in theory. The only one that, that Martin Wallace has designed where I think it really, really works overall, I've said this before, is Byzantium. Byzantium, I think, is the Euro slash war thing that Wallace was always trying to design. And it's the only one that I think bears its length well, doesn't feel repetitive, gives you some sense of historical scope. Uh, as it is, Princess of the Renaissance is, is interesting. 
I'm glad to have experienced it, but I'm probably done with it. I got to play Taverns of Tiefenhall. This is this game is uh, published by North Star Games here in North America. It's designed by Wolf Game Walsh, and it's going to be getting a expansion soon. And Chip the Third had not played it yet, so I want to have him have the experience. It's very much sort of a deck building type game. You're evolving this giant sort of tavern where you know customers and entertainers all come in, and you. Uh, not only do you build the deck because as you flip customers, as soon as they fill all the tables and you stop, you have to stop flipping. So you're trying to add more tables, uh, into your deck and add more sort of, uh, workers of your tavern into the deck. So the, the tables don't fill so quickly. And then you are drafting some dice and the dice go on the card. So, you know, it tells you how many beers you're going to produce or how much money the, Beers get you better Patreons, money get you better staff. So it's this very interesting sort of balance of, you know, am I going to get better patrons or am I going to get better staff? And you're also sort of advent calorying your whole tavern. You get to upgrade all the different <laughs> things. You get to flip over the little windows and then every round there's special events as well. I really very much enjoy Taverns of Tiefen Hall. I'm very, I want to see what this expansion is going to bring. Probably just more modules because there's just a ton, you know, they want you to play the base game and then they introduce like every single little mechanism as a module. I would suggest just going full tilt and just playing with everything right Yeah, even with all the modules, it's not very complicated. We did, we did, because uh, Chip Third had not played before, we sort of just peeled one off, the one with all this, you know, adding signatures to the card, which, you know, very much seems like an extra add-on mini game anyway. Right. But we played with everything else. I very much like taverns, especially just the dice manipulation and yelling at people when they take the dice that you want and trying to, and buying certain cards that will allow you to use all of the dice you want because ones and sixes are great. Usually the, the mid numbers are terrible. So you want to try to get patrons in so you can use those numbers. Anyway, tavern. Is the the new expansion going to introduce choices? Oh, quiet you. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I resent your implication. But it is fundamentally accurate. We played the crew, Mission Deep Sea. What is that? The crew is awesome. What else is the Yeah, say? I don't know what to say. We had some very, very weird missions. We had one where one of the requirements was you have to win the pink nine with a rocket. And that was bizarre. It, we, we just had a, a bunch of weird combinations. But in classic crew fashion... Uh, we lost the ones that seemed easy, and we won the we won the ones that seemed hard. You know, just a little bit of discipline and focus, and we were able to pull it out. We didn't play very difficult rounds. Again, I'm reveling in the freedom of the crew mission deep sea. You just pick a difficulty level and just peel off missions until you get to that threshold. It is endlessly flexible. I haven't even opened up the mission book yet, and there are further parameters to be found therein. I absolutely think that this completely obsoletes the original crew in terms of just variety of playstyles and the ability to go and see new trick-taking challenges, which is not to say that I wouldn't play the original crew. I've commented in the past, I've played it, but every time I, I go back to play it, I'm like, I wish I wish we were playing the Deep Sea version. I really need to read the mission book because I'm very much hoping they did a combination type thing where there are objectives in the missions, plus every so often it will say flip a card on sure. top of that. That would be kind of interesting. I'll have to take a look. Let's stay on point of trick-taking games, and let's talk about Marshmallow Test. This is a game by Reiner Knizia, put out by GameRight, and it is very much, the gameplay is very much like a standard uh, trick-taking game. The only change is, 
as soon as someone plays a trump card, it sort of breaks the seal on the lead. So someone leads green, someone play and does someone doesn't have green, so they trump it with red. Now, even if someone has green, they can still play a trump card. That's pretty well the only change to the mechanism of the trick. Right, it part. devalues the utility of low value trump cards. That's that's the biggest impact. So then it has a fantastic sort of mid round turning point because the way you score, you are going to if, as soon as you win three tricks, you're out and you're going to score as many points as the other players have won tricks. So you sort of want to let a bunch of other people win tricks and then you want to go out and get points. But if you are the last person in the round, then you are going to get zero points. So there's this very interesting sort of midway. Now I'm going to want to start winning tricks and now I got to get out quickly. Now I'm the last person and I get nothing. <laughs> yeah. Now, it depends what the number of players. We were playing with four players, and that's why it was it was three tricks. But you're right. It completely shatters a lot of your preconceptions about how to play a tricking game. I'm used to trying to go null, and I am used to trying to win tricks. I am not used to trying to go null for the first part of the, uh, the round and then recognizing when it's time to start winning tricks <laughs> because it is very dangerous to win even one trick in the early part of the game because... The rest of the table will try to feed you tricks. It is the nature of things. And then suddenly you find yourself going out the first and you get one point or no points. It's bad. It's real bad. And often that's worse than being the last to go out. Because if you're the last to go out, if you're the very last player at the table, that is to say, when the second to last person goes out, the round ends. If you're the last, you don't get any points. But at the very least, you get to pick Trump for next round, yeah, which I really, is something. I felt that was another, you know, not a huge decision thing, but very interesting decision thing. Just because of that, you know, midway points. Like, okay, right. well, I have a bunch of red. So I, do, do I want red to be Trump or do I want... Right. I, you know, it's not a huge thing, but I just felt it was very interesting. Well, it's such a simple inversion or tweak to a well-established formula that nonetheless makes everything feel fresh and new. And so to that extent, I think it's a, a marvelously well-done design. This is a redesign, unsurprising, a lot of Reiner Knizia modern designs are redesigns, of uh, voodoo prints. I don't know why people think it's okay to trade in stereotypes and tropes about voodoo the way they do, but it's the case. I mean good games like Cthulhu Death May Die that are otherwise progressive and interrogate a lot of cultural assumptions about the genre, nonetheless just casually traffic in a variety of very lazy stereotypes about voodoo. Anyhow, it's a, it's a, it's a genuine religious practice, and so I, I think it's a little bit problematic that a lot of games, even recent games, seek to stereotype in the way that it has. Uh, so I'm much, I'd much rather play it in the version of the Marshmallow Test, if for no other reason, setting that aside, that you have these lovely, squishy... Marshmallow score markers. It's so true. And it, for those of you that are not familiar, the marshmallow test is a somewhat famous psychological experiment where you give a child a marshmallow and you tell them you can eat the marshmallow now, but if you save the marshmallow in 15 minutes, I will give you a second marshmallow and then you can eat both of them. And then you see which ones eat the marshmallow and which ones don't. I thought that Stephen Colbert did a, a, a brilliant riff on the marshmallow test in that he he had one of the early progenitors on and and he said, I was like, okay, so I give you this marshmallow. And before he'd finished the sentence, he'd already eaten it. It's like, okay, what next? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, marshmallow, test, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm again, completely upended all of my intuitions about how to play a trick game. Not that I have, not that I'm very good at those kinds of games where I have solid impressions. I just felt completely at sea, but in the best possible way. I got Dice Miner back to the table. This is designed by Joshua De Boines and Nikolai Rosinski and published by Atlas Games. This is a 
uh, sort of a dice builder. So you grab a bunch of dice, you fill the mountain, and then there's restrictions to which dice you can sort of draft. You can only draft from the outside. You can't let dice fall. It's hard to explain audibly. But there's all these different phases at the end of the round where you score runs, you score treasure, you score hazards, and hopefully you have like sort of the counter to the hazards. It's I really enjoy it because it plays very quickly. You do three rounds. You get to keep all the dice from every round so you have this sort of massive sort of point generation thing building it's very you know rewarding seems rewarding i enjoy it has a great solo i that's what another game that i played multiple times solo i should actually bring that upstairs and play it a few more times because i remember being great solo dice miner by atlas games let us now speak walker of pure joy I have it's the next one for me as well. It's an absolute joy of a game. Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of Waterdeep. This is the second Dungeon Scrawlers game. This is the real-time connect the dots maze tracing game. I I am so in love <laughs> with the Dungeon Scrawlers games. The Heroes of Waterdeep version introduces a couple of wrinkles. There are now mini dungeons. You can uh, pull mini dungeons, which are these separate cards, and they have to complete them, and you'll be disgorged onto the main map at an appropriate spot. It nonetheless recycles a lot of the prior uh, mechanisms from the original Dungeon Scrawlers, namely most of the point scoring conventions and indeed all of the special character powers. But now the special character powers are printed on a lovely card on which you can write with your dry erase markers that will inevitably dry out. Entropy always wins, but it allows you to tally the score as you're going along. I, and I think it gets, you get to name your character. And you get to I name think... your character. And as before, they have these lovely art of, you know, fantasy adventurers wielding large markers, which is great. I, I love real-time games. Not everyone does. And I love the fact that this isn't, it's not really dexterity. It's certainly not challenging you to draw. <laughs> you're just going through this maze, desperately trying to see one room ahead so you know you're going in the right direction or headed towards something you want, but at the same time you feel this time pressure. It is just pure joy. I love these games so much, and every time you refuse to play them with me, it sends a dagger through my heart. I know. Watching your eyes and seeing you die a little inside every time I say no, it just fills me this this joy. The game is just pure, pure bliss. I, I, I don't explain. Some of us enjoy games. Some of us enjoy tormenting people and watching them suffer. I won't comment as to which one is which. So this was designed by Vangelis Bagiotakis and Konstantinos Karagiannis, published by WizKids this year. I hope that this is just the second of many, many standalone sets. We can only hope. Mark, another Reiner Knizzi game that we got to play that was very good, enjoyed by all. Viking Seesaw. This is put out by Itern, and it's minimalistic dexterity game, and it is a sort of seesaw ship, piece of wood, goes in the middle of the table, has a bunch of light wooden blocks on either side, as in cargo penalty blocks, and then you get an array of items that you now have to put on the boat. And unlike other dexterity games i know i know they have different shapes and some are bigger so they're they're heavier these are just some of them are are small but they're made of lead so they so there's this very much considerable difference in size and weight and so you're you actually it's a choice you're not just saying oh i'm just going to put this on put that on you're actually thinking about what you're looking at the boat saying okay there's this on that side okay this this might this might work and you want to try to get rid of your heaviest ones first and so 
everything has to be loaded to the, the side that's tipping up. And as soon as it falls down because of something that you've placed, things are going to fall off because when literally the seesaw tips. Yes. Yes. And so you have to take those pieces on and then, and then it goes around the table until you get rid of all your pieces. And every time you make it fall, you have to, like I said, there's penalty cargo. So you take it, take it to your, your pieces, everything about it. Easy to teach. Very quick to set up. Adorable, tiny itten box. Oh, it's so good. We adore the designs of Reiner Knizia here on this podcast. We adore dexterity games. Reiner Knizia has not designed many dexterity games. I only know of a very small number of which this is one, so I was very glad to get a copy. And indeed, it does not disappoint. We've played it twice over the course of the past two weeks, and both of them had considerably different tempos. One of them, I was a little disappointed by the, the overall flow of the game. I thought it might not be particularly dynamic, because one side of the boat got very heavily weighted down, and so it stayed in one position for a very, very long time. That was not true in our second game, where it shifted considerably over the course of things. And it's just, you have to eyeball the physics and say, okay, well, is that a heavy, is that a heavy piece? Yeah, but it's kind of near the middle so it's not exerting much force on the boat. Okay, what can I get away with? It's it's delightful. Yeah, it's it's, and John, there's such a limited space on the boat, so there's a dexterity element of trying to like not Absolutely. only get it to balance there, but fit there at the same time. It's it's great. Viking Seesaw by Reiner Knizia. Played Thunder Road Vendetta. This was designed by, wait for it, Dave Chalkers, Brett Myers, Noah Cohen, Rob Davio, Justin D. Jacobson, Jim Kiefer, and Brian Neff. This is a redesign of the 1986 Milton Bradley game by Jim Kiefer, and it is their answer to Mad Max, essentially. This is the Ayatollah of Rock and Roll of the Warrior of the Wasteland. Lord Humongous gets to field three cars and a helicopter, and it is actually a race game in that the winner is determined by who gets to win the race. That having been said... Generally speaking, it is hard to win a race if your cars are smoldering piles of slag. So there's combat, there's ramming people, there's shoving people off off the, the board. I was not prepared. Having come from Gaslands, Gaslands by the standards of tabletop miniatures games, your units are more fragile than a lot of them. This isn't the kind of game where you're going to be spending round after round after round whittling people down slowly. But nonetheless, it's not frequently one hit, one kill. In the context of Thunder Road Vendetta, one hit, one kill is very common. Sometimes that one hit is the thing, is the hit that you delivered, and it will end up killing you. Because anything that sends you off the board immediately kills you. But the, the, the boards are designed in such a way that they tend to encourage you to play it risky by going to the edges of the board, because that's where the easy going is. So the tempo of Thunder Road Vendetta is much, much faster than I thought it was going to be. You're going to have lots of casualties very, very early on. But then again, the race isn't going to last that much longer. At the end of the day, I thought it was perfectly pleasant. Ultimately, though, your success and failure are going to be determined a lot by the rolls of the dice. How fast you go is a function of the rolls of the dice. If you consistently roll nothing higher than a six, you're not going to be going very far. Similarly, a couple of bad combat rolls can put you completely out of commission near the start of the game. Or worse yet, effectively unable to win, but not completely eliminated from the game. Because although there's kind of sort of player elimination... Once a player is completely eliminated, that just means that the game is going to end the next time someone crosses a tile. So that that balancing act is fine. I just think it's a little bit miscalibrated in terms of its approach to risk, a little bit miscalibrated in terms of its approach to casualties. And given that, I would probably prefer if it were abstracted into something a little bit faster and or... Uh, a little bit less representational in terms of, you know, plotting out the movement of your car. Uh, I'd happily play it again, but I thought that, you know, as I say, a little of those details were just a little off. 
Oh, I really enjoyed it. I think they set out to do something that works very quickly, that won't bog you down in rules, that flows very quickly. You roll your four dice and you divide those into three cars and you have a special ability chart that everyone has the same sort of thing. So it's easy going. Cars move quickly. Like you said, they destroy fast. You move along and the game ends before you know it. And I would play Thunder Road anytime. I think it gives you that feel without a whole bunch of rules overload. It's true. There's not, I'm not saying it's too rules dense. That absolutely is great. A lot of racing games can get bogged down in different terrain types and this, that, and the other. I think this very much like tiny turbo cars gets the balance just right in terms of the actual racing part. It's just the actual racing part is married to an incredibly arbitrary die system. I'd much rather play a dice game, you know, something like Clash of Gladiators or even just lighter stuff like if hell, maybe even strike. Nah, not strike. I'm not going to go that far. Strike isn't really much of a game. But, you know, I'd much rather play something with a, uh, you know, push your luck dice element, like even Llama Dice, or as I said, Clash of the Gladiators. I, I feel like it's trying to pull off more game than the dice system will allow. I'd happily try it again. Maybe this was just the experience of a first play. Uh, I think it, it could also do with a little bit more pizzazz in terms of, you know, this character asymmetry, but that was a Kickstarter exclusive for now. Anyway, maybe they'll release it retail. Who's to say? I just, I just, it was close. It was close, but it, it wasn't quite there as far as I'm concerned. And that is Thunder Road Vendetta. I got to play Splendor Duel. I, I don't play very much Splendor, so I, I can't really compare the two. I don't know what normal Splendor is like, just two players. It's very much like Splendor. This is what I heard, which plays very much like Barony. I wonder if they have the same designer. Let me it, think. It's so, basically Mage Knight anyway. It's it's this is also true. So Splendor Duel is designed by is designed by Mark Andre, Bruno Cathala, and put out by Space Cowboys. And what uh Duel does, it has all of the all of your gems sort of available, right? They go on this square grid and you get to take them in groups of three as long as they're all connected. You can take less, of course, but you know optimally you want to take three so you're taking three off the board at the same time they have this new gem which is a pearl and there's only two of those so that's very you know hard to get so i like this sort of fighting to get those resources not this unlimited stacks that you're choosing from and then most of the rules are most mostly the same you know you can reserve cards you get a gold you you know you're building up your system to get better income and i think it played great for two players for Splendor, I've always enjoyed Splendor. It's on Board Game Arena. I've been playing it, you know, off and on. It's an interesting game. I like making the little engine, you know, that you can just start buying cards and not spending any gems, and that gets you even better cards, and you just start grabbing cards off the thing. Eh, Splendor Duel. Last but not least, Mark has forgotten one of the greatest games, Crazy Tower. This is designed by Matthew Auger, Manuel Lucas, Bergeron, Dumel, Aegis, Harvey, and Felix LeBlanc. Man, that's a lot of designers for this game, Mark. I also found out that there is a Crazy Tower XXL. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, we need to find a copy of this. I'm inclined to agree. It is, it's bigger, believe it or not. That's what the XXL is for. Just, you know. So I finally got to try one of the play modes that I've been, that I've wanted to try, the Saboteur mode, where the Saboteur's goal is to have the tower collapse not on their turn. And the goal of everyone else is to either finish the tower or have the tower collapse on the saboteur's turn. 
And that basically encourages the saboteur to make the tower as rickety as possible. Meanwhile, everybody else is trying to make it as stable as possible. Is this like the walker mode? I'm not I'm not sure. I, this is how I played all along. I don't, it didn't change. I know. I, I suggested this mode in part, and I'm very glad you were not selected as a saboteur. So you not do the same thing you always do, which is make it, the tower as rickety as possible because you just enjoy the danger. It's true. It's true. You're a bad you. element walker, and you're a bad influence. Like, yeah, this 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 tower actually got built, Mark. It got fall, <laughs> and there was like a foundation. I, I didn't it's true. I didn't know what was going on. It was very confusing. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy Crazy Tower as far as low impact, uh, low rules, dexterity games go. Easily. It is a great way to stack. Yep. Yeah. You get it. It's on Amazon. Easy to get. Super easy to teach. Kids would love it. Oh, Crazy Tower is such a good game. It is. It's almost as good as Dungeon Scrollers. Almost. And those are the games that we played in the last two weeks. Was that enough? I don't know. Now on to a little bit of news. I don't play very, very many video games, Mark. Back in the day, I played a little bit of Terraria. And now Terraria is going to get its own board game. Wow. I wish I could tell you more, but but there's no more information. <laughs> I don't know the designer. I know it's going to be published by Paperfort Games. They don't have very much out right now. It's going to be on Backerlit. Backer kit. Backer kit. Just Backer so, kit be backer lit. That's that's so, the slogan. So uh, just in case people don't know, that's another crowdfunding platform. There was actually a couple things on there that I, that I didn't even know about. That is, yeah. That's true. Quick reminder, witchcraft on GameFound. News. <laughs> so Mark, we were upset that uh, HeroScape didn't make its, its funding goal in, for Hasbro. Upset is strong. I was disappointed, but I kind of saw it coming. But Renegade, who who is doing a, a bunch of Hasbro games like uh, Acquire, Axe and Allies, Diplomacy, Rob Rally, Squad Leader, all, all games like that, they've decided that they're going to take over HeroScape and actually publish it. I have a feeling that I can't, I can't see it not being with all the work, preliminary work that had been done with the rendering and the rules. I cannot just see them not just doing that. I can't see being Tough something completely different. They might they might chop it up into different sets. I mean, the, the distribution model was always weird. It's the kind of thing where, as the crowdfunding for Hasbro didn't fund, but there had been over a million dollars pledged, I think it's reasonable for a lot of smaller publishers to be like, I know that a million bucks isn't enough to get Hasbro out of bed, but that'd be great. I'd love a million dollars gross for a project. I'll, I'll take that. So it seemed like a natural idea, and I'm glad that it's coming to pass. Renegade seems to have some ambitious plans. They're talking about support and trying to org- have organized play. I don't know how well suited HeroScape is for organized play, given the, the the setup time of terrain, but who knows? If they're able to make a go of it, that sounds great. Agreed. On the topic of things that I don't understand, but might end up turning great, Badgers from Mars, the designers and publishers of Regicide, have announced that the, formally announced that they're going to be doing Regicide Legacy. Because everything has a little campaign. Everything's got to have a campaign. It's true. The the part that I, I mean, I, I would hope, I would hope, I don't know the details. The details have been thin on the ground. I would hope that step one of the campaign is not win a game of Regicide. <laughs> I hope it's something like get to the second queen or get to the kings or something. Who knows? You're, you're just, you're nervous, aren't you? I'm just, <laughs> well, no, no, look, here's the thing. I am as confused... As someone would have been, if Badgers from Mars had said, no, 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 we've got this really great cooperative fantasy-themed battling game. It uses a standard deck of cards. 
I would have been thoroughly mystified by that pitch as well. So yeah, I'm sitting here very confused by the pitch of Regicide Legacy, but Badgers from Mars have pulled off the borderline impossible already. Maybe they'll do it again. So Regicide Leg- Legacy is a ways off from crowdfunding, uh, but when it is available in crowdfunding, we will absolutely let you know. So if I saw a title mark that said The Smurfs Hidden Village, the board game, I'd usually just dismiss it. You'd smurf it? You'd smurf I'd, it real I'd hard? smurf it out the door. Sure. But this is going to be designed by Antoine Boza, Clorin Lebrat, and Ludovic, the same designer. Ludovic Moblin. Theo Rivera, the same, uh, same people that are doing Dead Cells. Yes. So I am now on board. <laughs> I'm all about the Instead smurfs. of smurfing the design, you're ready to smurf it. I'm smurf. I'm going to smurf it right onto the table. Sure. The Smurfs Hidden Village. Once again, there was no information except what I just told you. So very importantly, it is Pride Month. And we try to be good allies here at Swag to the quilt bag community and everyone in the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, to that end, I would like to draw attention to something I'm pledging for on crowdfunding. Conquest Princess Fashion is Power. It's got strong kind of magical dress-up Defenders of the Universe vibes, and I am there for it. The theming is great, and uh, the design team has uh, a number of members of the queer community, and so I am very, very happy uh, to be on board for the crowdfunding of Conquest Princess Fashion is Power. I mean, the title alone. That's that's a title. it's, It's hard to turn your nose up at that title. So another video game I played back in the days, Worms, Mark. Remember, it was like a tank game. I remember game. Worms, yeah. yeah. Worms, yes. I played Scorched Earth, which was kind of yep. the progenitor. You, you played Scorched Earth? I played Earth Scorched Earth yep. as well, just so. Uh, so it is going to get a board game as well. It's going to be done by Mantic Games, and they've, they've done some good stuff. It's going to be launched on crowdfunding in August, and then it should be in retail by 2024. So, Mark, Gloomhaven 2nd Edition. Indeed. So when they first announced it, they said no upgrade pack. None whatsoever. Apparently there was an outcry. Can you imagine on the on the internet an outcry? <laughs> Crazy, I know, but bear with me. So now there's going to be an upgrade pack. We'll see what it's all about. So as I understand it, Isaac Childress of Cephalofair Games has said that they're going to issue, basically just reissue all the characters for Gloomhaven 2nd Edition. The assertion is that you can't do a full upgrade pack because too much would change. So now the idea would be that they would just have it so that you can play your 2nd Edition version of the base Gloomhaven characters in your Frosthaven campaigns. That's more or less the upshot. And I can kind of understand why Isaac Childress was like, look, too much has changed. We're not going to offer an upgrade pack. You want an upgrade pack? Uh, Here you go. Yeah, here's it, your Gloomhaven second edition. It's tricky. I understand, <laughs> uh, this is one of those instances where I understand both positions, and I can completely understand why things happened the way they did. Uh, I'm willing to give credit to Isaac Childress and Cephalofair Games for trying to accommodate the demands as best they can. Yeah, no one's forcing your hand. Yeah. Finally, for me, on a serious note, this is, as I said, Pride Month. And I just want to call attention to something that's happening in a variety of jurisdictions, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well. And uh, that is the pattern of book bans. And actually, the most banned books 
in the United States are Gender Queer, a memoir, and Flamer, which is also a coming-of-age story of a queer individual. And initially, this was restricted just to school libraries, but now it's trespassing onto public libraries as well. Not that banning books in school libraries is okay, but it's now bleeding out further and further into civil society. And the jurisdictional hook for gamers is as follows. Libraries have started to become a center of board gaming in a lot of different contexts for a lot of different cities, Public libraries were getting more and more games in their libraries, more and more games events, and a great way to bring in new people in the hobby. And I just want to question the following. Do you seriously think that the individuals that want to ban books that talk about gender identity, that want to ban books that talk about uh, queer individuals, that want to ban books that talk about a variety of racially charged and racist instances in the past, are going to stop and be okay with you playing Chaos in the Old World, or playing with your uh, Vermlings, or whatever, when that happens, I sincerely think that the next target might very well be anything else that is regarded as obscene, which is the classic watchword of anyone wanting to ban things. And so I think it's important for board gamers who care about local libraries, which should be all board gamers, if you don't know whether or not there are any book banning efforts in your area, find out. And if there are, I think it's your obligation to try to stop it. This is most pointedly in the case of states like Arkansas, Missouri, and Texas, but it's happening elsewhere. I think that any board gamer that is comfortable with book bans is short-sighted at best and hypocritical at worst. I think it is incumbent on all board gamers to be good allies even just for their own self-interest and fight back against any and all book bans. Because let me tell you, a lot of people would look at a lot of the games, even just a lot of the games that we talked about this week, and regard them as obscene and not fit for public consumption. And that is not a world, quite frankly, I want to live in. And that is the news, and as Walker says, why it sometimes matters. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact, where you will find all our contact information. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for having decided to spend time with us. We hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.